about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. Great if you kept that passage open. That'd be excellent. Uh, Mike got us back into our Galatians series last week, uh, and he did that in a really delightful, brilliant way. Uh, we're, we're talking about gospel freedom. We're talking about how the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, um, <laughs> it's all very confusing, uh, the good news of what Jesus has done can free us in a way that, very, uh, that nothing really in life can. That Jesus has died for you, forgiven your sins, uh, taken you into the grave, raised you up again. There's nothing like that that will free you. Uh, And verse 13, just in chapter 5, kind of shows you what we mean by that freedom. He says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Christian freedom is the freedom to love. It's a positive freedom, freedom for love. But you also notice in that verse that there's, a, there's a, a freedom from, to indulge the sinful nature, which is fascinating. So as we talk about freedom, we've got to talk about freedom from and freedom to. Mike talked about that last week. I'm going to take it in two parts, freedom from this week, freedom to next week. But let me ask you this question. If freedom, real freedom, is serving one another humbly in love, what gets in the way of you loving people? Fairly simple question, very complicated answer, don't you think? Uh, you know, if I think about my life and I think, why don't I love people? It's not really my circumstances that are pressing in on me. My circumstances are quite nice, really. They don't really force me to not love people. It's not really my upbringing. My parents were lovely. They showed me what love was. Uh, you know, I've had lots of examples growing up. It's not like I don't know what love is. It's just that I don't do it. What gets in the way of me loving people is me. And not just the frosted, coated, sparkly, outward me, but the, you know, the complex, convoluted, motivation-driven inside me. I just don't want to love people sometimes. Sometimes they make me feel uncomfortable and I don't want to deal with that. Sometimes they don't treat me like the significant snowflake that I am and that really angers me. You know, the, the passage we're talking about today talks about this phrase, sinful nature, and what it's talking about is that, that capacity that we have in ourselves to get in the way of loving. They're really Some of the problems that we have are not just external to us, but are inbuilt in us. And that really the only way to find freedom from them is by the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. As Paul says in another place, where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. So I want to talk today about how the Holy Spirit can free us from that sinful nature in three things, okay? That's where we're going to go. First one is this. The Spirit frees us. This is what he frees us from. He frees us from over-desire. Over-desire. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Look at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, or maybe better, walk by the Spirit, And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Straight off the bat, Paul says, do you want a power 
that will stop you getting in the way of loving. It's not in you, it's in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is powerful in us when he works in us to enable us to not indulge our sinful nature, but instead love. The power isn't in you, it's in him. But notice what he talks about the Spirit does. What does, what does he do in us? Well, he enables us to not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Which is a very helpful little phrase, because you might be thinking, well, what's sinful nature? What do I... What do I mean by that? In some other translations, it's flesh, which is even more confusing. But what, is, what do we do with that? And that word desire is very helpful. In other parts of the New Testament, that same word is translated as lust, referring to when sexual desire kind of overtakes you, when your good desire for sex becomes like an overdrive desire. It's a word not just for that, though. It's for all over-desires. It describes that moment when... A human takes a really good desire they have in them and they make that the thing they live by and for. One good thing becomes a craving that consumes them. You know, like when someone really loves money, say, and they work at a bank and they end up doing dodgy practices as a result. They're consumed by their love, their want, their craving for money or... That someone so craves the approval of others that they spend their whole time building a social media profile. See, our sinful nature is made up of both acts and desires. In uh, verse 19, it talks about the acts of the sinful nature. In verse 16, the desires of the sinful nature. And the way it works is your life is kind of like an iceberg. Uh, and what's most obvious is that we do messed up things a lot of the time, Right? Uh, We make mistakes, we lie, uh, we hate, we're jealous, we have fits of rage, we have ambition, we're envy, we're drunk, those kind of things. And what that is in our life is kind of like the the, the top of the iceberg. And and what we tend to do in life is spend our days chipping off kind of ice cubes off our problems. And that does something, not nothing, something, but in the end you have a whole heap of other things happening underneath that are your real problem. So it is with our sinful nature. It's not just that we do bad stuff. It's that inbuilt in us are desires, good desires, that have gone into overdrive that are kind of pressing us to behave in certain ways. We have acts and we have desires. The reason why we do things is because we desire something. And those desires are often so close to who we are that we kind of mistake them for our own personality. Here's one definition of sin that I find helpful. You may not. There we go. An organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Not just behaviors, but a whole mess and tangle of desire and thinking and belief that kind of is this big wriggling mass that upholds and pushes us to act in certain ways when given the chance in specific situations. You see, the Holy Spirit isn't interested in chipping off your ice cubes. He's going after your iceberg. Indeed, Paul says he has the power to stop. And look at the wording. uh, So that you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So that the iceberg underneath will stop producing ice above. So that the desires you have will stop 
becoming things in your life. The Holy Spirit has a power to do that. If you walk by him, he says, live by him. Referring to a habitual, embodied, continual walking in the power and aid of the Holy Spirit whom God the Father has given us. You see, one of the big reasons why we don't experience the Spirit of God is that we don't realize how big our problems are. We see ice above the water. We minimize it. Ah, oh, it's not that much ice. And we manage it. Ah, oh, I'll just chip a bit off today, tomorrow a bit more. And the thing is, is when you minimize and manage your own sin, uh, it kind of feels under your control. So you don't need anyone to help you. And in that situation, you don't really need the Holy Spirit to help. But when you start to realize that you have an iceberg problem that you can't beat by making ice cubes, that's when you cry out for the Holy Spirit. Continually, constantly, unendingly. Because the Holy Spirit can free you from over-desires. But the question is, isn't it, well, how? How does the Holy Spirit do that? And this is the second thing. What we learn here is that the Spirit fights desire with desire. The Spirit fights desire with desire. Have a look at verse 17. It starts with the word for, which means it's explaining the bit above. How does walking by the Spirit lead to you not gratifying desire? Well, the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other. How does the Holy Spirit counter your iceberg? Well, he creates different desires in you. Like if you just look up to... Uh, oh, man, I lost it. No, it's not there. Verse 5. 5 verse 5. By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The Holy Spirit introduces this new longing after a different righteousness, after a different life in us. He's not interested in chipping off ice cubes. He's going after your iceberg. It's really clever that in the end because we're not really good at dealing with desires we can't control. But you see, in your life, desire always trumps desire. It happens, you know, if you're in an emergency and there's a fire and uh, it's lunchtime and you are hungry, but then there's a fire and you run for two hours and you find that in those two hours you're not very hungry because you're trying to not die, right? <laughs> your desire to live outweighs your desire for lunch. Or perhaps this morning you had two coffees on the way in and you just realized you didn't go to the bathroom and your desire to listen is being trumped by your desire to pee, right? Desires trump desires. And what it doesn't say in verse 16 is that the Holy Spirit extinguishes your desires. Did you see that? It doesn't say that. It says, by him you won't gratify your desires. He doesn't extinguish them. What does he do with them then? He reorders them. He trumps our desires with other desires, pushing them in their place. When we walk into a situation with a longing for our own self-comfort, he says, well, what about them? What about what they're going through? And we begin to desire their good and not just our own. When we're longing to make a dumb decision and we really want to do it, he says, but you know, this life is temporary. There's a new one coming. You see, the Holy Spirit trumps desires with desires. And in his unique power, 
he is able to so push down and reorder our desires that we don't live out of them anymore. It's quite remarkable. It's quite a power that is in the end. And you can see how in verse 18 that if you're led by the Spirit, if you walk in that type of life, then you're not under the law. The law of the Ten Commandments would say, this is the type of life that God loves. But do you know what the law never gave you? Power to reorder your desires. The law can't do that. That's an internal work. It can tell you how bad your ice is looking above the surface, but it can't tell you what to fix under it. That's why living by the Holy Spirit is 100% different to just being a legalist following rules and laws. It's walking in his power, submitting to his guidance and lead, following the desires he gives you rather than your own. But this leads us into direct conflict with the freedom that our culture talks about, doesn't it? Because our culture talks a lot about a freedom of self-acceptance, of just going with what is inside you. But in verse 17, we learn that actually what happens in this conflict that the Spirit brews in us between different desires is that we end up not doing what we want to do. Or another translation, we are not to do what we want to do. Which is fundamentally anathema to our culture, follow your own desires. But I, I, if, you, if you read this little, little quote I've got, um, from, this is from an article, this is great. This is an article reviewing a book where someone read self-help books, right? So I'm telling you about a review of a book about who read books. It's great. But what uh, this reviewer talked about self-help books, and they said, you know, the contradiction at the heart of many self-help books is that you're supposed to accept yourself more while simultaneously changing to create a better you. So at, at the heart of our culture's transformation project is this internal contradiction that says you are fine as you are, but maybe with a little more discipline you could be better. And really it, it just speaks to the inability of either of those things to work. Accept yourself and your life will be better. Well, apparently that doesn't work. Uh, if you try a bit better, well, apparently that doesn't work either. You see, you, you can labor under this. You can submit to your own self-acceptance and your own powerful longing for a different life. Or you can accept what the Holy Spirit says. He says the exact opposite by the gospel. He says, you know, you're not okay as you are. And you have nothing in you that can change it. But there is one who accepts you as you are, Jesus Christ, and I am the power that will change you. So you're left with either, you know, living under the guidance of your own soul or living in the Spirit's power. You can live in that contradiction if you like. Or you can live in a power that can actually change you and accept you. Now this idea that the Spirit presses these desires in us and there's this conflict he creates in us is a really helpful idea. Because you might have walked into church today and you're listening to me and you're thinking, yeah, Matt, I know, I know, I know, I know. There's, just, there's stuff in me and I can't change it. There's desires I've been trying to change my entire Christian life and they're not going anywhere. And I, I understand what you're saying, but you're not helping. But you know what? If you walked into church today and you feel conflicted, pulled between two contrary, conflicting desires, 
You know what's happening, right? You're experiencing the Holy Spirit. See, we expect that when the Holy Spirit uh, is really working powerfully in our life, we'll kind of feel like an angel flying in the, eye, the air a little bit. But let me tell you, if you are experiencing painful conflict in your Christian life, it's much more likely that you're experiencing the Holy Spirit than someone flying in the air. Because this is his great work, reordering your iceberg. And he is in you, longing, desiring, and pointing, and reordering, and restructuring, and saying, come with me. Walk with me. Let me reorder you. I'd much prefer him to be my captain than the story of my culture. Martin Luther reflected on this, and he said, you know, my whole life, my whole life as a monk, I thought, I'm, I thought, I'm awful every time I had a wrong desire. Every time I, I felt hate or I felt lust or whatever, I hated myself. And he said, but then I read this verse and I realized, no, the Christian life is full of conflict. It's good. Saints are not stocks and stones that don't desire. They just submit themselves to the Spirit when they feel the pinch of conflict. So the Spirit frees us from over-desire, and he does that by fighting desire with desire. And so what do we do with that? How is that helpful to us? Well, I think really what you need to understand here is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in you is two things. He's trying to, and this is my third thing, he's trying to get you to know your sinful nature and to know your Savior. To know your sinful nature and to know your Savior. Uh, when you get to the, the, uh, the list here in verse 19 and 20, it feels really ugly, doesn't it? It feels a bit, a bit gross, but... It's, it's, it's supposed to help because one of the reasons why we don't walk by the Spirit ordinarily in life is because we keep him in compartments. We invite him on Sunday and dismiss him on Monday morning and maybe Wednesday night too. You can come hang out for a little bit. And the rest of our life is kind of untouched by him. We don't invite him in. We don't think about what he's desiring in us in those things. But this list kind of presses you to such a point that you can't do that anymore. It tries to touch every area of life so you can't wriggle out of the fact that your sinful nature does drive you. He starts by talking about kind of your sexual life, uh, the acts of the sinful nature, right? This is the above iceberg moment. Uh, Obvious sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. One of the clearest places we see over-desire in our culture is in our sex lives, isn't it? With our culture's great addiction to pornography. In those intimate private spaces, is he there? Or how about, this is completely left field, he goes, next, idolatry and witchcraft. You're like, where did that come from? Because part of your sinful nature is the ways religious means you use to try and manipulate God, like idols and witchcraft. You might think that you're trying to do that, but part of our sinful nature is always trying to control God. And we can walk with that sinful nature into church on Sundays. And pretend we're walking by the Spirit when we're really driven by the flesh. Or how about the next list? It talks about these kind of social ills, hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. This is the list of things that we kind of were really good at minimizing. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just blunt with people. That's just the way I am. I'm forthright. Or I'm just a peacekeeper, so I let people deal with their own mess and I don't try and get involved or... I just have a short fuse. Or I'm just a, I'm just a grump, grumpy person. Or I'm just a driven person. 
I'm asking all of these lists in just different terms, trying to manage and minimise. Or how about your party life? Drunkenness and orgies. The self-indulgence of things to escape the problems of life. You see how he like, corners you no matter where you are? And says, you know, there is things in your life that are big. They flow up from over-desire within you. And then he goes after and he says, you know, I warned you, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are things that cannot be minimized, that cannot be managed. Do you know your sinful nature? Are you even bold enough to take the next step and go, well, what's underneath this? What's underneath my envy? What's underneath this, this sex drive that I have? What's underneath all this ambition and drive? What's underneath this arrogance and my drinking? What's underneath it? What's driving me? What is my flesh doing? What's tangled up in there that's leading me away from love and away from God and into other things? That's a really brave question to ask, I reckon. But if that's what the Spirit is in the business of doing, he's helping us ask it. What's driving me? You know, I mentioned at the beginning the two things I think really drive me. You might have missed it. said it quickly. But the two things that really drive me that I go into overdrive are my longing for comfort and my longing to be significant. You know, my, my love of comfort turns me into a coward when I'm facing conflict. It makes me push others back when they need me because it's stressing me out. You know, my need for significance makes me jealous, even of other pastors who are more successful than me and angry that God made them like that and me like me. Yeah. I see these things in myself. These things drive me. I can, I can go through this list and tell you how comfort and significance drive me to many of these things. And the Spirit's power, can you see that for yourself? Because he is not just after your ice cubes, he's after your iceberg. Know your sinful nature, but know your saviour. Do, you know do you know what the Holy Spirit all day long is desiring in you? Or maybe who he's desiring? You see, the only way to trump over-desire is with another huge over-desire. And who the Holy Spirit longs for in you is Jesus Christ. You see, I need comfort. Life's hard sometimes. But my longing for comfort is a reflection on the fact that Jesus is a great comforter. I need a place in this world. I need a, a, a space to be me, to have some significant presence. But it's not me who dictates that, but him. You know, I need security in life, but bricks and mortar and money and bank accounts cannot give me what Jesus does. You see, your overdrive is actually expressing something of the beauty and significance of who Jesus is. And when the Holy Spirit begins to light up Jesus in the right way in you, when you know him, and the comfort he gives, or the significance he gives, or the approval that he gives, that's when your order, when your desires stop pressing you and ordering your life. Know your sinful nature, know your saviour. But this is all really scary, I, re I realise that. Telling you to look at your iceberg, it's kind of terrifying. And you find stuff that you hate, and that you're wondering how you didn't know about, and it's, it's not that fun, actually. Because it makes you feel really out of control. And I, re I recognize that. And let me finish by telling you about the most annoying character in Narnia. 
You know what it is, right? <laughs> Tell me, Eustace, what a useless so-and-so. Arrogant, petty, jealous. Like, he, he's nailing this list. And in The Dawn Trainer, uh, uh, he's very annoying. And at one point, he sulks and runs away and finds himself, falls into a dragon's den. There's a dead dragon there, and he falls asleep. And he wakes up, and he's a bit hungry, so he eats the dragon, which is a bit weird. And you're like, whoa, what's happening here? Then he looks in uh, the water that's there, and he sees a claw and he sees a snout and he realised that as he's been sleeping on dragon treasure, he's turned into a dragon. And so he flies off and finds his friends and his friends don't understand who he is and it's all very confusing and no one can help. And he kind of goes off and he's not sulking now but he's despairing. And Aslan the Great Lion comes to him and says, wow, this is a problem. You know, there's some water here. Uh, you know what you, you really need to do is you, you need to undress. You need to, you need to get that off. And so Eustace gets into the water and starts rubbing it on him and some scales come off a little bit and then they grow back on and they come off and they come back on and all that kind of thing. And Aslan looks at him and says, I think I'm going to have to undress you. And Aslan gets out his claws and begins to strip the dragon from off Eustace. Eustace says, uh, the first time he did it, it hurt so much, it felt like the claws went into my heart. And then he describes being ripped, rubbed, and raw, and becoming new. You see, your iceberg is so big and so unmanageable that there is no way you can wash it off. But there is one whose claws are ready and who already has ripped it off for you. In verse 24 it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. You know, when the nails went into Jesus on the cross, that's when the lion paw started to pull your flesh off you. And everything that gets in the way of you loving has already been dead and gone. See, when you realize that, you no longer feel helpless in the face of the stuff you see. You get interested in it. This stuff's gone. <laughs> Let's kill it more. And when your heart starts to see the lion who has ripped the flesh off you by having the flesh torn off him on the cross... That's when your heart not only finds him useful but beautiful, desiring him. And that's when your sinful nature loses its power. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we confess our mismanagement, our minimization, our unwillingness to face up to what we are. And yet we find in the, in the Holy Spirit such a counsellor and such a comforter who says he has the power, who says he will plant the desire, who says he will show us the Lord Jesus in the way we need most. And so, Father, we pray in the name of the one who has ripped our sinful nature off us that you would help us face ourselves honestly in your spirit's power and allow him to reorder our innermost self. And we pray this in his name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.